Good morning, everyone. Welcome once again to Warden Full Gospel Assembly. Glad you could join us, whether in person or online. As was mentioned in the announcement just a few moments ago, next week we are opening to 25% capacity, which means 100 people can attend our services. And I want to encourage you to start making plans to come back, especially if you've been vaccinated and have received your vaccinations, the double-dose one. Uh, We encourage you to start making plans to come back into fellowship here at Warden Assembly. So... um, We're glad you are here, however you are watching or participating in, um, as we go through the book of Acts. We've started this series through the summer months and into the fall as we study chapter by chapter through the book of Acts. And I don't know about you, but as I have been reading the book of Acts, it is uncanny to me how timely this study and how extremely relevant this study is for us today. The events that were happening in the first century are incredibly similar to our day and age today. Among the population, there was oppression, there was animosity, lots of confusion, misinformation being spread about, and manipulation happening on all kinds of fronts. Then, as now, It didn't matter where you lived or who you were. People were beginning to realize that life was not turning out as they had anticipated. And then a rabbi from Galilee shows up and he provides an alternative to life. Jesus arrives on the scene and he begins to describe this new opportunity for life, a new way to relate to people, a new way to navigate through each and every day, a new way to understand our creator, a new way to find purpose and meaning in our lives. And then Jesus makes a promise, an incredible promise to his group of followers, his disciples, whose emotions have been racked with grief. The euphoria of discovery that Jesus had risen from the dead and that he was indeed alive soon turned to disappointment that Jesus was leaving again. But the promise that Jesus made is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses. That's one of the first components of this incredible promise. In other words, you are going to show people the new way of living. You are going to be a visual observatory, an illustration of this life. You won't just tell people verbally about this life, but you are going to be a living, breathing illustration. And history and all historians have acknowledged and attest to the fact that Europe's first hospital were built by those early Christians to provide care during times of plague. And understanding that negligence to the spread of the disease further was, in fact, the Christians believed, murder. And so in the Antonine Plague of the second century, which killed 25% of the Roman Empire, Christians during this plague 
cared for the victims, and offered spiritual guidance and model whereby the plagues were not the work of an angry deity, but indeed was the brokenness, was a result of the brokenness of creation. Then in the fourth century, during another plague, the Roman Empire, Roman Emperor Julian talked about the Galileans who took care of people that did not agree with even their own beliefs. Church historian Pontanus wrote that Christians endured and sured the good was done to all men, not merely those to the household of faith. When the bubonic plague reached Germany in 1527, Martin Luther did not flee the city in which he lived, but stayed to minister among his fellow citizens, even though his own daughter Elizabeth died from the disease. Martin Luther wrote, the plague does not dissolve our duties as Christians to be witnesses. That's the first component of the statement that Jesus made in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. The second component of this promise is the fact that these witnesses, as a witness, the witness will flow from the power that is given. The power that is given is described from the Greek word dunamis, power, dynamite, dunamis. The English language translated this word as dynamite. And I wonder sometimes, didn't Jesus know that what he promised would be that explosive? Where the initial blast zone would occur in Jerusalem and then begin to continue throughout Judea and then Samaria? There would be this incredible ripple effect that reaches to the uttermost parts of the earth. There was going to be power, impact through people like you and me, living under a renewed power to accomplish the tasks of Jesus that would have seismic revelation and reverberation around the world in all communities. It is critical, my friends, to understand this incredible promise that Jesus is making. This is incredibly important to our understanding of what Jesus is trying to pronounce here in the book of Acts. The book of Acts is not a history book. It is not a history lesson, but it is an invitation. An invitation for all followers of Jesus, all disciples of Jesus, to engage, to enter into a new way of living Living in a dysfunctional world, a broken world, where the fragility of society is on display, we as witnesses can turn this world right side up. When you turn on the news, you see the messiness of our broken world. Yet Jesus offers another way to live life that is different from our culture. And what this season that we are in right now, what this season in the history of our country is showing us right now is that we need another narrative. We need another story in our lives, different from what our present culture is giving to us. And what you will soon discover in the book of Acts is that 
the people that are described in the book of Acts did not live some kind of euphoric, utopian life. The people in the book of Acts were not perfect, just like we are not perfect. They were not perfect. They lived average, everyday lives in a broken world. Their lives were also broken. And like you and me, they made mistakes. They had messed up family histories. They lived in less than ideal circumstances. And somehow in the middle of all the messiness and somehow in all the flawed brokenness in humanity, God moved mightily. And can I declare to you today that God is still moving today. There is a power that is moving through this earth. And we need to understand, in spite of the brokenness of our society, God is still moving. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. The promise that Jesus made is being brought into reality. It's what happens when a group of people become empowered by the living Christ and we begin to live like Christians in a culture that is broken. And when people begin to live a life true to the spirit-filled life that Jesus has promised, people will watch us and people will begin to ask, what is different about your life? And let me repeat myself again as I've mentioned before. These, These events... In Acts, while powerful, connect incredibly powerfully to our world today. So the promise that Jesus gave is to remind us, as we remember from last week, that Jesus told his disciples to wait. Go to Jerusalem, stay hunkered down, hold on, sit in this space, and wait to receive the promise. In order to receive the promise and in order to experience the fulfillment of this promise in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, waiting, as we talked about last week, was an essential part of this promise. And this is the challenge, isn't it? This is the challenge for us. In order for us to see God move powerfully, it sometimes requires from us a waiting attitude. This season of waiting is something we don't like. We have been in a season of many, many months of waiting because we are, we don't like it because we are people of action. We have this can-do attitude. And even during the pandemic, we can easily get very frustrated because we are waiting for things to reopen. But what if in this time of waiting, God is preparing us for something new. So what do we do during this season of waiting? What do we engage in? What do we participate in? And before we study this next section, let me remind you where it all began in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, verse 4. Once when they were eating, once when he was eating with them, he commanded them, Do not leave Jerusalem until the Father sends you the gift he promised, as I told you before. Now, after this instruction and a few more instructions that Jesus gave, Jesus, the Bible says, ascended into heaven. And the next section that we just read a few moments ago that David read for us 
What do people do as they wait? Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 12 through verse 26, is a very interesting story and quite strange, as a matter of fact. You may be asking, as you listen to the reading of the scripture, you may be asking to yourself, what does this scripture have to do with us? How does this story that ends with the disciples actually casting lots or rolling dice encourage us? How does this event in the latter part of Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 26, how does this event unlock God's promise of working in our time and in our day and age? Those are some really good questions. But what I want to highlight are three observations from this section in Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 26. Here are three things that I want you to notice. The first one is this. There is a connection between obedience and outpouring. Now, I want to take some time to explain this point, this first point, very carefully. Because in the church presently, as in past history, there is and has come this idea or this image that we have created of who God is. And it's this idea that points to, a, to the fact that God is very demanding, that God is harsh, and that God is ready to display judgment, which has caused people to live with religious ideas that force people to live under legalism and under rigid disciplines and religious obligations. And it's also caused people to reject the God of the Bible and the God of Christianity. Let me make this point very clear. God's love for you and for me is unconditional. You need to embrace that truth. Let me repeat it again so that you don't miss it. God's love for you and for me is unconditional. There is zero, there is zero connection between your obedience and God's love for you. It is extremely important that you understand this truth. Listen, friends, you can't earn God's love. You can't earn God's affection for you. You can't lose his love. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. And yet, I still hear people say today that you have to obey God for him to love you. Friends, that is completely and totally 100% false. But, but when you receive the unique moves of God, when you see this in the Bible, the unique moves of God throughout the scriptures and throughout history, you consistently see a significant connection, however, between obedience and outpouring. The text that was read a few moments ago gives us an example of that. Look at what it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then the apostles returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, a distance of a half a mile. So Jesus says, wait, 
stay in Jerusalem. And the first thing that the disciples do after the ascension of Jesus is to walk from that place, the Mount of Olives, where they were standing at, and they go back to the city. Now, you have to understand that this moment is a very disorientating moment for the disciples. They've just spent 40 days with Jesus after the resurrection, and now he is gone. There is so much uncertainty. And Acts chapter 1, verse 12 is a verse that describes the obedience of the disciples. In this emotional upheaval that they are experiencing, they were obedient still to go back to the city, which, by the way, Jerusalem was the epicenter of opposition to the disciples. They were going back into the lion's den, as it were, because they were obedient to Jesus. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment. Jesus tells them where he wants them to stay. Then he leaves. And there had to be this moment as the disciples are standing on the Mount of Olives where they looked at each other and probably asked themselves, is he serious? If Jesus isn't here, who is going to protect us when we go into the city? If Jesus isn't with us, how do we know that he and what is he asking us? What is he asking of us to do? Now, I realize, I realize that this is a small detail for us to ponder, but this is the beginning. This verse is the beginning of what God is about to do, and it requires obedience from the disciples. I, I point this verse out to you because this is often what happens in our lives as well. Obedience does not impact the love that God has for us. Did you get that? Obedience does not impact the love that God has for us, but it does influence our relationship with God. Can I just say that again? Obedience does not impact the love that God has for you and for me, but it does influence our relationship with God. Not only is this true in our relationship with God, It is also true in family relationships. Let me give you an example of my own family. When our children were young, we would ask them to do chores or give them some kind of responsibility, and they would normally do it, but if they didn't do something, you know, a lot of times children had this excuse of, I forgot, or they broke a household rule, my love for them didn't change. I still loved my children immensely, but it did impact our relationship. It might undermine, their disobedience might undermine my trust of them until they could prove again that they were trustworthy. I might have to go back and re-explain some things to them, or we would realize that they were not quite as mature as they, we thought they would be. But on the flip side, if they completed a chore or if they completed a task that we asked them to do, we would increase our trust of them. If I can trust my children with this, then I could also trust them for that. So here's this dynamic. The dynamic is that the more they obey, the more I trust them. The more that I trust them, the more freedom they receive. 
That's the same connection we see here in the text between obedience and the move of God. Obedience to God seems to create this space where the Holy Spirit, it's the space where the Holy Spirit begins to interact with human flesh, this, this interaction that becomes magnificent and beautiful. Yet the correlating truth is that disobedience closes this space. That's why it's so important for us to consider. Perhaps you're like me where we come to God and we ask him, God, would you move? God, would you give me direction? God, would you reshape my situation? And then we realize that God has already, has already done it, but I don't like what he has said, or I don't like what he has already done, or I'm not paying attention, so I miss what God is saying, or I simply ignore because it doesn't make sense to me. And so we don't do anything. God, we say, I wish you would show me who you are. I wish you would come close to me. I wish you would rescue me from my situation. It reminds me of a story of a man who was walking on a path alongside a cliff, and suddenly he loses his balance and he falls off. And as he is falling, he is able to grab a hold of a ledge on his way down. And he's barely hanging there. He's hanging on to dear life. And while after a while, he begins to call for help. Is there anybody who can help me there? No answer. He calls again. Is there anybody there who can help me? No answer. He calls again and again and again as he's hanging on the edge of the cliff. Is there anybody who can help me? Finally, a voice calls back. This is God. I can help you. Just let go and trust. And the man yells back, is there anybody else up there who can help me? See, there's this connection between obedience and God's outpouring. Maybe you're asking God to do something in your life, but there's this step that God is asking you to do. Maybe to lean into something into, in order that you may grow spiritually. Or maybe it's to make a decision to move away from something that is detrimental to your life. Maybe God wants you to engage in a step of forgiveness towards somebody. Is there a step that God perhaps has asked you to do something and you have just left it hanging there? Maybe it's to give 10% of your income, your tithe to the church, or give your bonus that you receive for mission support. Maybe, maybe God is asking you to provide groceries to a family that is in need in your neighborhood. Maybe he's asking you to become more faithful as a volunteer. See, in this spectrum of faith living, can I encourage you that whatever you've been prompted to do by the Spirit of God in this space where you are walking in obedience to Him, can I ask you to look back and take the necessary step that God wants you to take to exercise some faith, to lean in, to be obedient to whatever God has asked you to do? That's the first step. Here's the second thing 
that you need to make notice of of this portion of scripture in Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through verse 26. Here, notice this. The second thing I want you to notice is the devotion to prayer. The devotion to prayer. Notice what it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 14. Notice these words. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer along with, mother, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, several other women, and the brothers of Jesus. Can I submit to you that a prayerful pursuit of God proceeds a powerful move of God? I'm not saying that this is prayer that is conjured up to be some secret weapon where we think if we pray long enough or if we pray hard enough, then God is obligated to act on our behalf or that we pray so that God is somehow coerced into doing what we want him to do. It's not like that. Unfortunately, that's the mindset in the church many people have. The thinking of Christian people is that if I pray hard enough and that somehow God, somehow in the midst of praying urgently enough and, and fearlessly enough and hard enough, that somehow God will do what I want him to do. And then if nothing happens, we begin to think that maybe the issue is that I'm not doing it right. Can I also add this to you? I might also add that if the reason you are praying, the reason that you are praying is that it is somehow a step or a formula to get to God, then you have missed the point of what prayer is all about. I want to submit to you that prayer is about spending time with God. Simply engaging in his presence, having a heart pursuit towards God, opening up a relationship with God. You know, when we talk about relationship with people, a lot of times in order to have an effective relationship, there has to be conversation and some kind of communication because those two things, conversation, communication, are the cornerstones to any relationship. If you never talk to a person, you don't actually have a relationship with that person. If you're not talking, if you're not communicating, how can there be a relationship? It's similar to prayer. Prayer in its simplest, simplest definition. We've made it so complicated in the church and so complex, and we have all these convoluted ideas of what prayer is. But can I give you a very simple definition of what prayer is. Notice what it is. You can see it on the screen. It's basically sitting and talking and listening in God's presence. Simple. Sitting, listening, talking in God's presence. It's this, it's this simple awareness, having this heart, this mind that is aligned to God where our heart attitude is not my will, but thine, O God. This increasing awareness of God's presence, where you are humbled by God's presence. Personally, I have found that this time of silence in God's presence creates incredible moments of intimacy, where there are also times when I might pray with words, words that come out of my mouth, where I express feelings and anxieties and 
also appreciations and concern. But there's this, also this incredible moment of just simply sitting and waiting and acknowledging that I'm in the presence of God. So here are these disciples. They are waiting. They don't know what for. They simply have received the word that there's coming a promise. But at this moment, as we've read in the scriptures, they are pursuing prayer, simply being ready for some kind of promise to come, some kind of transformation, some kind of emergence of just waiting on God to fulfill his promise. Honestly, I think God loves it when we approach prayer with the mindset as these disciples of Jesus did. When we lean in into thoughtful praying and thoughtful pursuit of listening and engaging God and the Holy Spirit. Can I submit to you that people of the Spirit come alive when they take time to be in the presence of Almighty God? Last week I listened to a podcast, a cultural moment podcast uh, from a Alpha Leadership Conference, and Norm Bodach had sent it to me, and it was the premise of this entire podcast was about the commitment and the reliance on prayer to initiate the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, can I submit to you, none of us have much to offer as we live in this secular life, but when we come and approach a life pattern where we rely upon the strength of the Holy Spirit immeasurable and supernatural things can take place. If you want to understand what is transpiring in our city and in our communities, we need to sit in close connection to the Spirit of God. We need to stay close to the presence of God in prayer. We need to trust that the Spirit of God will lead us to be agents of change in our culture. And one of the presenters, and I quote this from one of the presenters who stated this, personal renewal will lead to corporate church renewal. That's a powerful statement. Personal renewal will lead to corporate church renewal. Can I submit to you that the church is destined to fail unless God shows up? Make no mistake about it. We need the Holy Spirit in all of our endeavors as a church. Not only in the church, but in our marketplaces. Perhaps more than anywhere else, we need the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in our personal lives. Personal renewal will lead to corporate church renewal. And here's my last observation before we engage in communion together. The last observation is found in Acts chapter 1, verse 15, that we need to maintain a faith posture. Notice what the Bible says in Acts chapter 1, verse 15. During this time, when about 120 believers were together in one place, Peter stood up and addressed them. Now, this account in Acts chapter 1 closes this chapter out. And it begins with, during this time. And from those words, there is a long section which talks about the casting of Lot or the rolling of dice, as it were, 
in order to discern God's will about who should take the place of Judas, the disciple who committed suicide. And there's been all kinds of speculation, scholarly opinions over as to the reason why they needed to replace Judas, but it seems very strange to have this event included here. Now, on the surface, it may, it may be something that we want to avoid or we just kind of skip over it as an unnecessary story. But if you take time to read this account and review this event, there is something quite meaningful that stands out. And the best way to explain this section is to think of it in terms of a growing relationship. You in your family, as well as in our family, in order to have a healthy and growing family relationship, there comes a time when we, as parents, we release our children to be their own adults. Over the years, children have watched their parents. They learn the processes and the systems of conducting life, and hopefully they become less dependent on us for the most simplest of directions. As a parent, you want to see your children start doing things for themselves, where they can become more confident to engage the world and make meaningful decisions based on the knowledge that they have gained from you and have watched your life transform their lives, where you have modeled their life for them. And once you've modeled their life and they become adult, they then can take productive action. Will they do the things that you did exactly the way you did those things? Probably not. But at least you have built confidence within their lives. Confidence in knowing that they have a capacity to know what they want. Confidence to have a sense to follow their heart. Confidence in discerning the pros and the cons of any decision that they must make in life. Confidence in their faith. So when you read this last section of Acts chapter 1, verse 12, through verse 26, the disciples obeyed the instructions of Jesus, they devoted themselves to prayer, and now this last section shows us that they are now making a decision. Not a random decision, not a random action, but where they begin to move out in confidence, knowing and believing that while they are waiting for this promise to be fulfilled, they are exercising a moment of faith in the selection of a new disciple to replace Judas. Literally, here's the scenario. There are two people the Bible says Justice and Matthias. But at some point, these disciples are saying, here we have two people. They're both great people. God, how do we select these people? We have to trust you for the results. We have to trust you for the outcome. And this whole account, the chapter one, is not an expression of uncertainty, it's an expression of faith and trust and confidence that as they step out and make a decision that God will direct their steps. They say, they're basically saying, Lord, we have done our part. Here are a couple of options. We have two great people. We are going to trust you in the outcome, believing that you have 
our best interest at heart, that there is a better future for us. And, and while we make this decision, while we cast these lots, you have the control over what we are casting about. See, here's what's happening. Jesus, and here's the point to underscore, Jesus at this point is literally turning the reins of God's kingdom and unleashing the reins of God's kingdom to his disciples. And he is saying, you go for it. You go for it. You have watched me all of these years. You've been my disciples. You have followed me. I now trust you with the keys of the kingdom. This COVID pandemic has been excruciatingly brutal on so many fronts for so many people, both mentally, spiritually, physically. And while we have been waiting for church to come back and reopen and where we can come and gather again, can I tell you, we have been busy praying and seeking God for the new preferred future of the church. There is something that God is doing behind the scenes, and I want to catch the wind of the Spirit to absolutely know what God is saying by His Holy Spirit to the church today. And as I close, let me ask you, whether you are watching on the screen right now or whether you are here in the sanctuary, let me ask you some very personal questions for your own personal life. Are there things that God is asking of you that you have been ignoring? That's the first question. The second question is this. Is there an invitation from the Holy Spirit to engage in something, but you haven't planned to pursue it? And the third question is this. Have you taken time? Have you taken time during this pandemic to recalibrate your life, to reprioritize, to realign some things in your life so that once things reopen, you are able and capable to engage God's heart for your life with greater intensity. See, friends, we have this new opportunity during this wholesome shift that is taking place. We have this new opportunity for a new meaning in all of our lives. And all of us should be praying. All of us should be praying, Holy Spirit, what are you doing in the world? What are you doing in this church? How does our church play a part of your activities in this world? And maybe on a personal level, you should be praying, Holy Spirit, how do I fit in to the grand scheme of what the Lord is trying to accomplish in these days? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we ask that in our relationship with you, that you would draw close to us as we draw close to you. That in the midst of this pandemic, you would show yourself real to us and that we would be people of obedience, that we would be people of prayer, 
and that we would be people of faith. And in that relationship, oh God, may we be sensitive to your call, both individually and collectively, and on a grander scheme, God, for everybody who calls our church their home, may we walk in the direction that the Spirit is moving us. Make us sensitive to that, O Lord, I pray. In Jesus' name, all God's people said, amen and amen.